Hey everyone, welcome to Useful to God. I'm James Spencer. I'm here with Richard Beatty, and today we are going to be studying Genesis 9. Genesis 9 occurs uh, at the end of the flood. This is where Noah has waited for the waters to abate. He's uh, He's been in the ark for uh, at least 40 days and 40 nights, plus some, um, as he needed the water to sort of evaporate and move away from the earth so he can get back onto dry land. And really, Genesis 9 represents the initiation of this new creation and new covenant with the Lord that is going to allow Noah to continue the initial vocation that God gave to Adam and Eve. Yeah, the wording on this, James, uh, is uh, is interesting because it is it's like a reset. Uh, I mean, you're you're seeing recreation in 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 its uh, most uh, quintessential form, uh, if if we could use that word, quintessential. You know, then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, "Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. The fear and dr- and dread of you." will fall on all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky. It's stronger language than subdue. What, what's the reason for that? So I, I think two things. You know, obviously the language of be fruitful and multiply is hearkening back to Genesis 1. So uh, whenever we we read that language, Genesis 1, 28, God tells them, God tells the original, you know, sort of humanity, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the, over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, my thinking on why the language is sort of expanded, why this dread will be on all of the, the beasts of the field and the right. birds of the air is that we are now not in a utopian situation. So at the beginning, what God is doing is he's establishing sort of the uh, boundaries and relationships that are going to be aligned with the order that he is creating. So if we think about creation, not just as creation ex nihilo or out of nothing, the creation of material things, mm-hmm. right? If we think of creation in terms of creating a particular arrangement of relationships, with different sets of boundaries and functions within those boundaries. Right. So uh, consider, you know, uh, God separates dry land from the water. Now, dry land is not going to do the same thing that water does. Mm -hmm. And if water comes back over dry land, we got issues, right? Right. We still see it today with different floods and stuff like that. Like uh, natural disasters are problematic. And so, but when, when, Creation behaves in the manner that God established it to behave in. Mm-hmm. Things are great. Okay. So what I see in Genesis 1, uh, particularly in Genesis 128, where God tells the human uh, couple or the, the humans to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and to have some dominion over uh, the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and every living thing that moves on the earth. I see it as uh, an establishment of a particular sort of authority. Humankind is being given this sort of authority over um, all the other aspects of creation. Mm -hmm. Whereas in Genesis 9, what we're seeing is that that creation, while God has sort of recreated this event through the flood, 
So in other words, the waters have uh, immersed the dry land. And now after the flood, after the flood water sort of spread back out, they're dry land back again. And so there is an, uh, a reseparation of these two elements. But it's still a fallen world. And so that authority that human beings exercise isn't strictly authority. It right. now turns into something slightly different. And that there's a dominating aspect to it that that cultivates a different relationship with the rest of creation that is now construed as dread, as opposed to just being a hierarchical relationship where human beings exercise a benevolent authority over all of creation. That's the the distinction I'm seeing. Yeah, and and it is a pretty... uh... It's a, a very interesting uh, way of looking at it. I mean, because now you have—I mean, you had the murder. You have—you uh, had a lot of different things that were uh, going on, and, and and probably was not the last murder from uh, with uh, Cain and Abel, um, uh, especially since the world was so evil. I, I like how it goes. Verse three: Everything that lives and moves about will be food for you, just as I gave you the green plants. I now give you everything, but then you go to four and there's a big butt there, uh, but you must not eat meat that ha- that still has its lifeblood in it. And, and for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal. So you, well, now we have accountability. Uh, this is, a, and, and uh, you know, uh, for yeah. life issues. Yeah, you you not only have accountability, but this expansion. So after the flood, what you see is an expansion of what God is granting human beings to do on the earth. Right. And I tend to think of this in terms of the consequences of the fall. And so what you're seeing is um, God is saying, look, uh, after the fall, it's going to take toil. Right. You're going to have to really sort of work to get really have to work this thing. (laughs) Right. To cultivate you know, the the vegetation that that prior to the fall was just sort of available to you. But after the fall, you've got to now work for it. And so this is an accommodation, I think, of a fallen world. It's not wrong then to eat meat. It's not wrong to, you know, uh, you know, I had a hamburger for lunch and that's okay. Right. But the reality is that there's also a boundary put in place here. And I, and I think a lot of times we don't give enough thought to this idea of boundaries. Whenever God is creating and or recreating, we see this again in the Exodus, which has a lot of resonances with creation. What we end up seeing in creation, in the flood, and in the Exodus are the creation of boundaries. It is a separation of roles and a creation of um areas of operation right and so here what we're seeing is yes i'm giving you all the animals but i'm giving you all the animals within a very particular context and there are things that you can't do with the animals that i'm giving you there are things that you should not do with the animals that i'm giving you and these now constitute new boundaries post flood that you're going to have to adhere to. And God often expands those boundaries, gives different boundaries 
shifts right. those boundaries depending really on the context and and we could call them political arrangements of the people that he's talking to. And so, you know, after the flood, we see this and we might say, well, you know, God is, is sort of changing his mind on this, you know, before the flood, could they not eat animals? After the flood, they could eat animals, all that kind of good stuff. But the reality is that uh, Israel's law and the boundaries that God sets in general are somewhat malleable. Right. So I look at something like Deuteronomy 17, where it gives um, legal instruction regarding the Israelite king. Mm-hmm. Well, in Deuteronomy, there is no Israelite king. Yeah. And so it anticipates something, a, a new innovation within the politics of Israel that right. would require a different sort of governance. Yeah. It's still within the spirit of that covenant, of the relationship with God, of of establishing the order that God has created, but it's an expansion. And so as we look at this here in Genesis 9, that's what's really happening. It's uh, it, it's it's kind of civilization, isn't it? Uh, it's that's that's exactly what's happening here. It's uh, it, it, it's our civil codes. It's our. Uh, it, it's our ethics. Uh, it's uh, everything that goes along with it. So I, I always uh, I always laugh when somebody says, "Well, you can't legislate morality." Well, what is legislation but legislating morality, right? Well, and you you think about this in terms of there's there's a sort of what I would call a pernicious Old Testament understanding of the law. Yeah, where it it divides the law into the moral, the civil, and the ceremonial or cultic, mm. and it assumes that we could parse out, you know, and separate what is moral, what is civil, and what is cultic. Right. But the reality is, and this is from my old uh, my my dissertation mentor uh, Richard Averbeck. Oh, yeah. The law is not divisible; it's unified. And so what I think we see here is, and and this is how I think it's unified. This is not necessarily the way he would say it, but this is the way I would say it. Even in this moment in Genesis 9, where we're seeing this slight expansion of the law, right, where, where God is going to give Noah something different than he gave to Adam and Eve, for instance. Mm-hmm. What we're really seeing is God creating and, and accommodating to some degree to the situation of humanity but always keeping himself in the center. Hmm. And so what we're doing when we, when we adhere to the boundaries that God gives is we are saying there's much more that we could do. There's much more that we could enjoy. Like the whole earth is open to us. We can fill the earth, subdue it. We have dominion over it. And yet to exercise that dominion without acknowledging God Right. Is not what humans are created to do. Mm-hmm. Humans are created to acknowledge God. And these boundaries that God gives, the, the various boundaries throughout the Bible, regardless of whether they change or stay the same or, you know, all those different things, they are designed, I think, to keep us focused on God. Mm-hmm. The boundaries are there to remind us that. Adhering to the law in and of itself is not a, an end, right? It's a right. means to an end. 
And that real end is acknowledging God, recognizing him as the most relevant actor and factor in our lives, infinitely greater than any other actor and factor in any situation that we face, that we face. That's, that's pretty rich when you think about it. And, 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 um, and very, very perceptive, I think, because uh, when you, when you look at it and I look at the jobs that I've done and I look at, uh, you know, some of the things that have happened in my family. And I think once we don't, uh, it, it, then then it becomes something, the thing that you made it is right. nowhere near what God's plan was for you. And that's exactly what's happening here, isn't it? Correct. I mean, I, I think that as Noah steps out of the ark, he's there with his family. He knows he has responsibility to populate the earth. God is giving him a provision here to say you don't have to just live on the veggies. You can actually eat the meat, right? But there are boundaries to eating that meat. Right. And so what he's giving Noah is uh, an additional resource, right, to repopulate the earth with the acknowledgement that Noah's context is very different as as prototypical as Noah may be to Adam, yes. right? And there, there's many ways in which Noah is the new Adam, right? right? He is going to repopulate the earth in a way that Adam was populating the earth initially. Mm-hmm. But the contexts are totally different, completely different, right? Adam was doing this with Eve uh, before the fall, right? He was right. given this sort of paradise, this utopian world. Noah is not in that situation, so Noah needs additional resource. In order to pull this off, God is saying, yeah, I'll make some accommodations. I'm going to do this for you. Here's what it is. But don't cross this line. Right. And and so what we really see here is that uh, Noah is being given new stipulations, Hmm. new uh, boundaries, that allow him to acknowledge God and never to step over those boundaries is to acknowledge God. And so it becomes this sort of participatory understanding of who God is and how God operates in the world. No matter how convenient it may be to eat an animal with its life life's blood in it, no matter what belief system Moses or Noah may run into, as he is, uh, you know, sacrificing animals or, you know, um, you know, thinking about eating different sort of meat or whatever, like right. he has this boundary and to mm-hmm. adhere to that boundary is to acknowledge God inherently. It doesn't turn into a right. tradition or some sort of ritual. It is always aimed at, no, God told me not to do this and thus I will not do it. It doesn't matter how much sense it may make to do it. Ultimately, because God prohibited it, it makes no sense to move in that direction. Now, when you when you hear the new Adam and you uh, or the or, or, or a better Adam, <laughs> you know, um, you know, it reminds me you, know, you go you go for tires and they they show you three and they say this is good, this is better, and this is best. So are are we like? Uh, I mean, if can, can I make that analogy uh, where you, where you can say, okay, Noah was good, 
but uh and uh, i mean i'm sorry adam was good adam was good no was no better. was better and <laughs> yeah. jesus was the best right so <laughs> uh, i i think in this case we really just have two adams yeah, there's okay. not three tires there's only two <laughs> um adam and noah fall in the same category yeah. uh adam while created sort of innocent and uh morally pure and you know without sin initially Right. ultimately makes the same sort of choices that every other human is going to make. Right. And so um, you don't break that pattern until you get to Jesus Christ. Right. Noah is going to make mistakes here. And the nature of his mistake is difficult to understand, right? He gets he gets a little tipsy in a tent, <laughs> um, shows his nakedness to his kids, yeah. um, and there's a whole kerfuffle there. Um, what exactly that is, you know, how all that sort of works itself out, it's not 100% clear, right? But in the end, what the point of it, the point of that narrative is that Noah isn't going to be the individual who ushers in a new creation. Noah is very much susceptible to the patterns of Adam. And so even though God has sort of set him up and, and Noah is considered righteous and he has followed all the laws and the statutes and all those things, the way that, most, that Noah is described in, this, in Genesis is actually pretty impressive. It's, it's sort of flowery right. language. It's, you know, he's no slouch, mm -hmm. but he's not Jesus. Right. And, and so until we get to Jesus, that pattern of uh, denying God to follow after our own judgments is not broken. Jesus is the first and only person who does that. Right. And so I agree, yes, there's sort of a kick the tire sort of analogy there, but I think it's only two tires. We're driving a motorcycle, not a car. <laughs> I gotcha. No, yeah. point well taken. And so, <laughs> and you know, I'm just going to go off a little bit. Uh, you know, yeah, no, it's, a, uh, it's good. I mean, Noah is, I, I think Noah is not a better Adam. Noah is a sign that Adam's curse is not ending. Right. And I think, it, you know, when we look at the, the difference between Adam and Noah, these two narratives, what we're really, I think, supposed to take away from them. Right is this idea that God is faithful regardless. Right. Like, God is always the hero of the biblical narrative. No, right. no matter how good the the actual character is, <laughs> right? True. I mean, we get to Abraham eventually in, in Genesis, and Abraham is sort of the father of the faith, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, Genesis 15, 6, uh, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And yet... Abraham sleeps with his wife's uh, maidservant. Right. He lies to the Pharaoh in Egypt, tells tells him that Sarah is his sister and not his wife. He does that twice. Right. <laughs> right. I mean, this is not a guy who you're, you want to necessarily model your life on. And in other words, he's got faults like the rest of us. Mm -hmm. And that's every biblical character. And so I think the point of both of these narratives, Adam and Noah, is to demonstrate that God is faithful regardless of what his people do. Yeah, that's great. Um, and uh, then we get to, to verse 7. As for you, be fruitful and increase in number. Multiply on the earth and increase upon it. Uh, right. we're, we're talking about, uh, you know, we're just talking about people, and we're talking about uh, how 
we're uh, we're to multiply and uh, and and all of those things, and it's reiterated. It's not. Um, is there any difference in the in, in that uh, in that mandate? Not particularly. I, I think that um, what we're seeing here is that God desires, and, and I think this is an important point. So we can often think of be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it, right? In terms of physical reproduction. Right. We can emphasize, in other words, the fill. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, fill and multiply. Be fruitful and multiply. Um, and, and that's certainly the case. I think in Genesis 1, what we see uh, when God creates male and female, that, you know, God brings all the animals to Adam and there's no suitable helper or a mate for him. And then God creates woman. I think part of what we see there is these complementary aspects coming together so that human beings can reproduce. I think that's an aspect of this. But I think it would be a mistake to think that that's the whole idea. Right. Um, when we look at this in terms of the image of God and what Noah and his uh, family is really supposed to do, they are intended to uh, push out the authority of God throughout the whole world. In other words, being fruitful and multiplying is not just numerical, it's qualitative. Right. Right. And so they are supposed to multiply so as to demonstrate the authority of God across the whole earth. Mm -hmm. And that is the sort of convergence of both numerical multiplication, quantitative, and a demonstration of faithfulness to the Lord and adherence to the law, qualitative. And so this this covenant doesn't differ substantially from what we see in Genesis, uh, Genesis one. Sorry. Right. All right. Uh, well, we ha don't have a lot of time left on this, but so so we better yeah. get to the covenant, right? So <laughs> yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah, I established my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again. Will there be a flood to destroy the earth? He says that several times. And so, right. Uh, which... and, and I mean, I think the importance of this is, you know, twofold. Number one, the nature of the covenant stipulations of the covenant. God is basically covenanting not to do something again. Right. And so he's saying that I will never again destroy the earth with a flood. Yes. And so there will never be another decreation event in the way that I have done it here. That's what he's promising not only to Noah, but to every living creature on the earth. Mm -hmm. And so that's what he's establishing. He is, in essence, reestablishing what he did with Adam. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. Right? Like right. that aspect of this is your human destiny. This is your marching orders. Go and do this. Mm -hmm. But also that the way that creation is generally is going to stay the way it is. I will no longer... Uh, mix up the elements of creation in the way that I have done with the flood again. Right. And so I'm committing to you that the earth will largely stay substantially the same until the end. That I think is what this covenant really mandates. And so Noah is to go out and spread the authority of God to shine the glory of God as his image throughout all creation. And that creation will remain largely the same. There will not be another cataclysmic flood that destroys the earth, 
but God is saying, no, this will be it. And the sign is a rainbow, and rainbow is obviously co-opted by a number of different uh, organizations at this point, (laughs) right? But the rainbow is really intended to be a sign of this covenant, so that whenever all creation looked up and saw this rainbow, they would remember that God promised no longer, ever again, to destroy the earth by the flood. Right. Which is much better than DocuSign, uh, which... (laughs) (laughs) it's a much better yes it's a it's a better uh we have a much better security in this than docusign and and the bottom of the page so god said to noah this is the sign of the covenant i have established between me and all life on on the earth just sign there (laughs) right that's right that's that's it (laughs) and and, you know you see god (laughs) (laughs) that's a pretty good guarantee yeah, that's, that's a right. Good guarantee. Yeah, if you're going to get a guarantee that, and, and especially yeah. when uh, you know, I I brought up tires earlier, so uh, you know, you, <laughs> if you're yeah. financing, I, I mean, it's just <laughs> God, your tires are better than Goodyear tires. That's, that's right. Really, the that's idea. Right. You're the best. So, that's right. <laughs> you're more expensive too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Very good. Uh, well, that's uh, that's chapter nine, and we we did that in a, in a half hour or twenty eight minutes and thirty seconds. Very good. And we will uh, we'll be back next time. We'll talk a little bit about Genesis 11, 1 through 9, which I know we've covered in past episodes, but um, want to sort of revisit it a little bit. Yeah, that'd be great. Uh, also, uh, please uh, go ahead and give all the particulars of where people can start getting some of these studies. Absolutely. So uh, people can find us at usefultogod.com. And they can also find us, uh, you know, on KLTT, obviously, on Monday afternoons. But uh, we're also going to start the Useful to God podcast, which will be available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Very good. All right. We'll see you next week.